look at it from the the macro perspective like uh people often ask questions that are too micro focused and they're not looking at the the bigger picture and, big picture yeah yeah and, and what's really going to contribute to them swing faster in the next six to 12 months so um yeah don't be too concerned with the minute details of your of your stroke Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast, the show that helps swimmers and triathletes love the water, become a better swimmer, and live a better life. Here's your host, Brenton Ford. Welcome to episode number 136. Today's episode is how to not let the numbers and data rule your swimming. And my guest today is Nick Jankowskis from Mets Performance, and they're a Melbourne-based company that help athletes with a whole range of tests that you can use to then use some data to incorporate that into how you're training, particularly for endurance athletes. So a lot of that is around VO2 max testing, uh, lactic threshold testing, and they've got a few other ones as well. In this episode, we look at how you can use some of the numbers and the tests that elite athletes use, but use them in a simple and effective way and not get caught up in them. Because one of the things that I hate is complexity. So that's why we try and keep things very simple. And I like Nick's approach and Met's performance approach using these numbers, but then not getting too caught up in them every time that you train and not worrying if you're five seconds off per hundred or six seconds off per hundred in one session, looking at, at a macro scale. So really just how to keep enjoying what you're doing, having fun, but making sure that you're using the right scientific approach to your training. And before we get into the episode, I want to let you know about the camps that we've got running next year. We've just finalized our Noosa camp, which is a brand new camp that we'll be running. It's a six day, five night camp held in Noosa, which is one of my favorite places in the world it's just beautiful and well, I was there for a couple of weeks with the family and it's got some of the best sunrises and sunsets and just a really really special place to swim so we've got a, a six-day camp there where the first couple of days we'll be doing some open water swimming we'll be doing a lot of underwater filming analysis coaching there'll be a very high coach to swimmer ratio there and uh, we were also tying it in with an event which will be held on the last day. So Ironman are running a, a swim event there. There's a 1, 2, and 3.8K option. And that's going to be the final thing that we do at the camp. So uh, everyone will choose their event and then we'll all go out for lunch afterwards. And uh, if you enjoy swimming, if you love the beach, if you love open water swimming, plus you want to improve your swimming, then this is going to be a, a really fun camp that I, I can't wait for. So that's in May next year. If you're interested in that, go to the website at effortlesswimming.com and click on the camp section and you can find more details about the Noosa camp. We've also opened up bookings for our Hell Week camps, which will be held in October next year. They are our Thailand camps that we've run for the last five years. And uh, for those that have listened for a while, you know that those camps book up 12 months in advance. So we've just decided to open up dates or bookings really early if you are interested in booking. So uh, you can book into that now. And we're also running our Hawaii camps next year. Details for those will be finalized very shortly. So if you're listening to this a few weeks late, then you can probably find details about the Hawaii camp on our website. So head to effortlesswing.com for more details on those. Let's get into the episode with Nick Jankowskis from Mets Performance. Our philosophy behind things is is trying to bring the, the common, I guess, elite sports science that, that commonly has not really been available to, to the everyday athlete to to bring that to to a more readily available platform and, and allow guys to go through, do their VH max testing, understand what their physiology is doing, understand where, where their training zones fit, so what their heart rate is like, what, what intensity they should be holding for different types of sessions, and then and have a clear clear recommendation for them of, of how they should go about their next block of training. So I, I guess that leads into really what, what we do now with our with our guys that we coach. So we, we mostly work with 
it's our top five are swimmers, cyclists, runners, rowers, and triathletes. With with triathletes, cyclists, and runners, probably the the main area of focus that we do we do specialize in. But we go right through perform physiological testing on them through VO2 max, a lactate analysis, understanding what what is happening with that blood lactate component, a um, bit of an aerobic versus anaerobic uh, contribution of things, break down their data from uh, from their testing. So you have a look right through, build out their training zones, and then and then deliver the training off the back of it if they are one of our coached coached athletes or provide the recommendations on onward to their coach um their, or their existing coach so we're sort of pretty flexible in that space but we, we definitely specialize in the the science of performance and particularly endurance performance is where where we do most of our work or if not all of our work and over the past couple of years that you've been at Mets, what are, are there things there that you've come to understand better or that you've learned from working with a lot of athletes over that time doing these different tests yeah, I think the I think the main one is that 85, 90% of endurance athletes are a lot similar to each other than what they probably like to think. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of different paths to the same outcome. And if you take, I mean, Melbourne Marathon's a, a good example that we're doing with a lot of athletes who are who are training for that at the moment. And and there's a lot of different ways you can go about the training to lead up to a, a three hour marathon or a sub three marathon, for example. But the interesting thing that we found is 85, 9% of the athletes that come in to see us generally who are training for the same event generally display very, very similar traits in their physiology. And so that's probably the big thing just looking at trends in the data is that we, you can almost you can always pick before they've done the test what's going to happen based off what type of training they've roughly done and what event they're training for. So um, we can get a pretty good understanding of, yeah, they're probably going to have a reasonable VO2 max. They're probably... I mean, it's gotten to the point now where, where we can sort of we can set someone up on a test and, and pretty much pinpoint where their threshold is going to hit and where their where their VO2 max is going to hit with a reasonable understanding of just asking them a few questions before the test, just because we see very similar things in in physiology across similar types of athletes. Um, we do see some interesting interesting trends, particularly with triathletes. The the big one is uh, we ideally like to test their their bike and their run uh, in separate sessions, so we'll see very similar VO2 max numbers but we'll see quite different heart rate readings uh, often seven to ten beats higher on the run compared to the bike um and then we'll often see thing, something like ventilation so how much air they're getting in per uh, per minute is generally a little bit higher on the bike compared to the run uh because their torso is a little bit more stable a little bit more relaxed less likelihood of falling off falling off the, the treddy because they're, they're on the bike as well so th- things like that we start to see starts to see some differences um and also we've had a few swimmers come through a little bit tricky to to do a swimming test without uh one of those like sort of endless pools where you can control intensity and pretty sort of complex comprehensive setup to to properly vo2 access swimmers but we've had a few swimmers uh come through some of the open water guys and obviously our triathletes as well doing a bit of swimming um and we see some see pretty pretty similar things uh with their heart rate sort of being more aligned with what we see running wise so if we're ever prescribing similar sessions in the pool to what to what we would in the run, so if we're looking for a long, like a long slow swim, for example, we generally work off pretty similar. If we're if we're trying to stick to maybe a heart rate, again, something difficult to monitor in a in a swim session, but we, we sort of relate it pretty closer to that that running because we we seem to get a pretty a reasonably accurate rating. And and interestingly enough, some of some of the students have done rowing tests um, as well with this, which has been interesting. Um, more of that upper body demand is is a little bit more specific. So. They're probably they're probably some of the the key things I've probably learnt over the last last couple of years working 
working in the field or, or working in the industry at, at Mets is just seeing some of those similarities across sports and, and across types of athletes competing for the same event. Uh, and then being able to, but then being able to take that, that similarity and, and use, use the data from their test to, to provide that individual difference, I think is the, is the key step that um, a lot of coaches, a lot of athletes sort of miss is we, we know, we know how the pros train, but if you, if you, if you want to train and perform better, it may not be, that might, may not be the best path for you, uh, if that makes sense. So, um, sort of working through what is the best, the best path based on, based on that trait that we've got in the athlete and those subtle differences. Um, and it's the differences in heart rate, subtle differences in lactate readings as well, which is giving us that clear path of, all right, where does, where's the athlete need to go? Um, so we may be doing a similar type of session, but we, we might be tweaking it um, as a result of the data we get from the test. So mm. that, that as a whole is probably the, 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 the biggest thing that, um, that I've sort of noticed over the last little while. There's a big crossover there from uh, us running a lot of clinics and working with a lot of a lot of athletes over the last couple of years where I've found it's when looking at, at stroke and analyzing technique, it's it's come down to just it's padding pattern recognition so we yeah um you know you, you look at someone swimming and you just you work with so many different people that you pretty much straight away you can go right they're doing this they're doing this they're doing this and then it then it comes down to giving those individual recommendations based on what um yeah, maybe what the the athletes beliefs are and their their approach to their sport and maybe what type of personality they are you know how how can you best deliver it that way and uh, and and then just those little nuances that are different to, to each person and uh yeah you know across the board there's usually the same two or three common mistakes that you see in uh in tech yeah in, in technique and then there's probably some some similar things with with how they're training and is there is there any common things that you see with how endurance athletes are training that you get them to adjust or correct any any common mistakes there yeah, hundred percent. Just so before I sort of get into that, hundred percent agree with what you're saying. It's pattern recognition. Um, we see you see the same thing. It's just making those tweaks. And I guess in terms of the common things that we see, um, and that we do make those those tweaks on, a lot of uh, probably the one big session that uh, I mean we'll we're happy to sort of give the session away because a lot of it comes from um, just any any sort of literature and research paper you read on trying to improve things like VO two max and aerobic power. It's it's one of the go-tos but in terms of a session that we often don't see athletes do and it's really clear when we see the data in in terms of their ability to use oxygen and their aerobic power so their ability to use oxygen quickly if you like at the back end of a test when they're working hard at those high intensities um is a, is a really simple high intensity session where you, you're pretty much going flat out nine nine and a half out of ten intensity um we equate it to 95 percent of uh, your velocity or your your workload at at max um and you're working off a one-to-one work-to-rest ratio, two minutes on, and you get a two-minute walking recovery or a two-minute very easy recovery. Um, and just working through that, so six, seven, eight times throughout the session. It's a really simple session, super high intensity. There's lots of rest. We just don't see a lot of athletes do it. A lot of athletes, particularly in in sort of triathlon running um, and, and cycling, we generally see a lot of that sort of in and around threshold. So race, I guess race pace uh, gets thrown around a lot, that term. Um, I'm not, I've never been a big fan of just, uh, of, of, uh, athletes just working off. Oh, I went out and did 40 minutes of, of race pace today. Um, there's for me, from a, from a numbers perspective, there's no metric to that. I don't, I don't really, you know, like what is race pace? It's so broad and, and vague, but in terms of, we see a lot of that, um, 
going out and going going reasonably hard for a period of time and then having short recoveries and trying to back it up again, which has a time and place. Um, and that time and place is very specific to racing, but the adaptation from that plateaus really quickly. So we see athletes can get generally pretty, I guess, race fit, if you want to call it, um, or primed specific for their race within about six to eight weeks of, of when their event is. Um, anytime before that, if they keep chipping away, eventually you're going to plateau and plateau pretty hard. Um, apart from anything else, those types of sessions where we're working, let's say you're working half a te- you're on for 10 minutes at sort of an eight out of 10 intensity if we're using RPA, but um, working thereabouts at threshold, working pretty hard, you have a half the recovery, so five-minute recovery, you go again. It's lactic in, lactic out partially, but then it comes back in again, and we're just sort of buffering and, and worrying about tolerating that like the acid which a lot of athletes are really good at because when we race that's what we have to do so if you've got a stacked race schedule you're already pretty pretty good at and triathletes are notorious for it you're racing every month if you're racing 2xu series or you're racing every three months if you're racing sort of 70.3 um sort of distance so there's always something going on to to build that whereas we often miss that moving the top end of your engine which is going to give you an extra ability to improve that threshold so uh, I guess a easy way to think about it is if you've got a V6 engine at the moment, you can only fit six cylinders into that engine. And if you think about the cylinders being where your threshold fits in and the engine being your overall your overall performance ability, um, if you can only fit six cylinders in, that may be the difference for a triathlete of, well, I can only push that threshold. I can only get up to about four minute Ks, um, four minutes per K. Um, or for a, for a swimming example, maybe I can only hold uh, 90 second hundreds over the course of my 1500 meter swim because the top end of my engine's not not much far above it i've got nowhere nowhere to move um once you hit max you can exceed max but only in very short bouts i mean we're talking swimming terms it's like if you go flat out for 50 meters yeah you can sprint but you're not going to sustain that pace forever so the, the difference being if we can move that top end by doing some of that really high intensity what we call vo2 interval work is you extend the size of the engine. Now we've got the, the capacity and ability to fit uh, more cylinders in, if you like. So go from a VX to, V6 to a V8. V8 engine, now we've got six cylinders to play with. Um, a V8 engine on six cylinders is going to be more powerful than a V6 on six. You've got that bigger size engine. You're using more oxygen. Um, it's just an easy tweak, I guess, to the interval sessions that we're doing is we're actually get, we're making them harder with intensity, but we're actually giving athletes more rest. So I think that's the thing that, that gets a lot of them is – I'm not necessarily feeling at the end of the session like I've worked harder than I have previously. You've been going hard in those intervals, but you've had plenty of recovery to be able to allow you to sustain that quality of interval. Mm. Um, so again, that's probably that's probably the biggest tweak we make is is just making athletes more aware of if we can increase the size of the engine to start with, you've got more to play with. You, you, you don't have to worry about, well, I'm only looking at one or 2%. For some athletes, it's a case of, and and I've had this I had this sort of early last year, I had a cyclist come and see me and he he came in, tested, and then tested three or four months later, went away and just did all he did was really long, slow base Ks and then he did some really high intensity, these VO2 style intervals. His FTP went up by 30 watts. And he hadn't actually targeted a threshold type session. He'd give himself heaps of recovery uh, in those really high intensity bouts, but made them quality efforts. And then he just did lots of really long, slow, comfortable work. And what happened was his his VO2 max had improved by about 10, 12%, and that allowed him to drag up his FTP with it. He, he ended up maxing in the test. I think it was, uh, I'm going to get numbers wrong, but let's say if he maxed out at 300 watts in the first test, the second test was 330, he finished the test. What it meant for his FTP was it was the same relative percentage of his engine, but his engine was bigger, so his FTP came up too. So, um, and, and it was by about sort of 30 watts. So 
that's where we can see some some improvement by by working around it and looking at right, where are you sort of weak at the moment. If your ability is auctioning at the top end and your engine size isn't great overall, your percentage of that that you can hold in a race isn't going to be much lesser than that max. You've only got probably one or two percent to chase. Why not chase 10, 15 percent in changing the size of your engine completely? Because now it's got the capacity to to work through more. So I guess that's probably the big one. Um, the other one as well is just overdoing the volume. Um, where we often get perceived from the outside, and we like to laugh about it a bit. We often get perceived from the outside as being sort of anti-volume training. We're definitely not. Um, again, time and place, where does it fit in and, and how much do you need? But uh, it, it's more of a case of when we've got athletes who are training for, let's say, a 70.3 where they're, they're only going to be expected to run for maybe 90 minutes to two hours for, for the average the average age grouper. If they're going out and doing a four-hour run, we just sort of look at that and go, "There's not, there's not much method to method to the madness, really. There's not much going on there that's useful. Um, minimal effective doses is, is the principle we abide by. So, what's the? So, I guess the minimum amount of quality training we can do for the maximum benefit, um, allowing you to recover more and, and and sort of tick multiple boxes off, as opposed to oh, I'm just doing K's because everyone else is sort of doing K's and doing crazy, crazy distances. Um, sometimes that's Strava. not the answer. It looks good on Strava. Yeah, go out and do a 200k ride, but sometimes it's not the, not the, the right way to go about it. Um, yeah. Puts you at high risk for injury, etc. So they're probably the two major things. Yeah, that's definitely a lot of crossover with what I've seen. And I, I think the other thing that that plays a part of that is like wider wider people either do the do the long distances without uh, maybe the the planning behind it or the reason why behind it, or why aren't they doing those high intensity efforts with a lot more rest in between and a big part of that and and i've even fallen into this trap when i've done distance training for sort of longer distance swims and even triathlon it's like you know you you all you want to try and do is just just push yourself and push yourself and keep you know keep at that sort of you know race pace or threshold pace and just um and you feel like if you take too much rest then you're losing the the benefits there but sometimes if you take that step back and you actually give yourself some time to get the heart rate down, you can keep the quality of quality of your technique up if it's in the pool, but also keep the intensity up at that higher level. Then you really see a see a difference. And an example that um, that, that I'll give is uh, one of our athletes who who does a follow up filming in Melbourne pretty regularly. Um, he said he's he's just started to plateau with his swim time. So I asked him what what's he doing with his training sessions because his technique has improved a lot over the last I think it's been nine months, and mm. you know there's there's definitely some tweaks we can still make. But um, I was curious as to what he's doing in his workouts. And most sessions, uh, he'll get in the water, go through a, a K time trial, just off the bat, and then do maybe another eight I don't know eight to twelve hundred meters uh, where it might be some sort of interval work but all pretty much at the same speed. So you look at that and go, sweet, there is a lot of room available there to break out of that plateau, swim, you know, really increase your, your swim speed and mm. um, and build that engine by just changing what you're doing in your workout. So it's, it's a really big component of getting faster. There's so many different things you can look at and especially for swimming, obviously we're focused heavily on technique, but workouts is definitely one of those and then there's mobility and, and things as well. But um, you know, when you when you move these levers in all these different areas, that's when you really start to see these one percent improvements start to to add up. So I think that's yeah, really interesting. I, we definitely see that that same thing with the type of training that, that people are doing. 
Yeah, and it's a it's a case as well. And uh, again, we, we see it a lot with a- athletes who, who bang their head against the wall, going, "Why aren't I getting faster?" But uh, like you sit the nail on the head, goes you know, they jump in the pool and they do a one k time trial at the same pace every session. That's going to get you really good at uh, and like are you, are you running running terms? It's easy off the top of my head, but if you want to go out and run um, four minute k's and you just all you do is running four minute k's, you get really good at four minute k's. But if you want to run at 345s, you have to practice it. And this is where just taking things to the next level is you got to, if we, if you go out at three, want to run at 345 and get better at it, if you can go out and run short efforts at 330 pace and get better at those, yes, you're giving yourself rest, but it gives you that ability to go, hey, 345 isn't so bad. And it's the same in the pool. If you, if you're swimming, and I know a lot of guys, and you probably see us a lot, a lot of our guys that, uh, the triathletes come in and see us who, that they can't break through. 140 145 per 100 and they're really trying to get down to sort of 90 i guess 90 seconds um from sort of what what we've seen over the last little while is is i guess a, a bit of a magical barrier for a lot of people they want to get down to a 90 second 100 um but they, they can't get down there and i i asked him well what are you what are you doing in your training are you doing anything to to teach your body to go that next level fast yeah you don't have you don't have to sustain it and that's the key you don't have to necessarily go and swim a 120 100 um, all the time but if you can swim that sort of 120 pace for 50 75 meters that 190 is now looking a little bit more achievable um so it's just yeah changing i guess changing mindset a bit and like anything if you do it again and again and again you get really good at it but at some point you need to challenge yourself to to go that next level um and do something different to to provide that yeah next challenge and, and move up if it's pace if it's um, holding a pace for a, a greater distance, like why? Why do we overload? Why do we go from one k, one k in the pool to one point two five to fifteen hundred meters to two k? Why do we progressively overload? Because it's progressively challenging us to go to a little bit further distance, a little bit further. So when we get to race day, we're we're able to handle it. Um, it's exactly the same. It's just not often sort of looked at when it terms when it comes to how do we do the same for pace. Yeah, that's it. And one of the, one of the things that I try and get um, athletes that I coach to do is just if they're not already, just do some variable pace swimming where let's, for ex- yep. an example of there's a young kid that lives pretty close to me. Um, I coach him every now and then and do some training with him and he's never done that much work towards training for his 400s. So he doesn't know how to pace himself. And he, in terms of his speed, his, his awareness around what pace he's going isn't, isn't as good as it could be. So a session that we did the other day was, uh, I've got to think back to it, but I think it was, it was 10 100s twice through so it was 2100s and we yep. worked off his goal 400 meter pace so i think uh his sort of target pace was a 109 for the 400 but i think he'll, he'll actually be quicker than that because of how he was swimming but we basically started off at uh 400 pl- pace plus mm-hmm. uh fif- plus 15 seconds so 109 plus 15 so going for 124 and then we i think we went uh plus no it was at 16 so plus 16 plus 14 plus 12 and then i think we went plus plus 10 then we had a recovery 100 then we went down to uh yeah plus eight plus six then recovery and then we went a plus four recovery plus two recovery and then uh i think one at 400 pace or maybe two at 400 pace something along those lines and and he was the first set he was way off the mark he he went out at plus eight and uh and then kind of went plus eight plus eight plus seven and just didn't quite have it the second set he almost hit it every time and we did a similar set yesterday and uh he was spot on so just 
yeah, it doesn't take a lot to give you that awareness around what your pace is and especially for swimming when you don't necessarily get to see what time you are doing. Yeah. Uh, then it's that a is a, oh, be such an important skill to, to have. So um, just throwing a simple set like that in can help you and same for running, you know, it can just help you get a, a sense. And that's one of the issues I have with wearing the watches so often is, yeah, in running, I don't mind it, but especially in the pool, I'm I'm, I'm against wearing the watches. I think if you can read your, your pace off the clock, you're so much better off because then you're not distracted by your watch beeping and, you know, you just when – when I've worn it in training, I just – my technique isn't as good, my stroke isn't as good, and I'm not as aware of those other things and, and that sort of sense of pace and feeling in my body. I just – I lose that because of the distraction of the watch. So I'm a big fan of swimming without – without the watch and just using the pace clock to, to go, uh, you know, to, to know what times you're doing. Mm. And, and I think that's, that's something that, um, a lot of athletes fall into the trap of. And again, probably another misconception of, of where from the outside into to what we do at Mets is, is we are very numbers here. And yeah, we are in, in some circumstances and with, with training zones and that, but you're dead right. If you can't, if you can't understand what pace your body's going at without, having to be glued to looking at a screen to tell you what you're doing um some, something's missing you're not you're going to struggle on race day i can i can guarantee it because yeah mm. I, I don't get any i don't get any of my guys to to look at their watch during a session um i like to have them record the data and that's probably about it purely from a fact of i just want to see post session um if i'm not able to be there with them which a lot of our a lot of our guys unfortunately can't we can't be there every session with them um but just be able to see what they did in the session and allow us to monitor fatigue, et cetera. But yeah, you're, I'm exactly the same. I jump in the pool and I, yeah, I grew up swimming without a watch and I only wear it now purely for the purpose of recording data. Um, and then just to get used to it for, for race day racing tries where I've got it for pace and uh, pace and wattage and heart rate um, on the bike and bike in the run. So saves me a bit of time and transition trying to chuck it on that I ideally, yeah, not really like to wear it in the swim because yeah, if you pace clocks aren't, aren't too bad to read, but if you can if you can understand understand what your body feels like at given intensities, that's that's hugely powerful, and, and it transfers to running and cycling as well. If you don't have to look at a screen to tell you what intensity it is, if you can be pretty close and have a pretty good idea, um, I've seen in in stuff I've seen over the last two years anyway, the best athletes that have come in and seen us have been able to tell us pretty much exactly what what their heart rate should be doing at different intensities. Um, even it's breaking down like they're running on the treadmill at, at let's say four like four minute k the four seventeens and they say oh what's heart rate um, and they can, they can pretty much recall heart rate to be honest they can tell us oh, it should be about one sixty five one seventy beats at whatever pace and sure enough it's within about two beats of what they're telling us um, maybe not to that level I mean that's probably at the extreme end where you can you can really knuckle down and, and identify it but um, just going out and being able to understand pace on your own without without some of this technology is is extremely useful and shouldn't be shouldn't be left behind. At the same time, you've got to balance it though with, um, and this is where just recording the data and having a look at it from an analysis point point of view later on is where data is useful um, and understanding how what what happened in that session and how it can improve and and I guess even even sort of looking from a swimming perspective and you probably touch on more of this is. Like I'm sure you, with some of you guys, you're you're coaching. You're using stopwatches and things like that. At the end of the day, it's still recording recording data and having a look. It's just giving like you're just taking that that watch element away. So um, it, it gives you that benchmark to look at and go. All right, 
what do we need to do next session to improve and it, it gives you a baseline to then measure against is probably the big thing um but yeah you can't can't underestimate how how powerful it is to to understand what your body's doing at, at different intensities and how you're going to handle it yeah that that baseline and measuring what measuring where you're at and and what you're doing is mm. is crucial and an example of that is i had a guy michael andrew on the podcast um in the previous one actually and he's a he's a professional swimmer in the states and he the the two types of training he does so the morning sessions are what's called ultra short race pace training which is basically um going at a specific uh specific race pace kind of self-explanatory with uh with about 15 seconds rest in between and you're looking to hit your uh, your your race pace in every 25 or every 50 that you're doing. And yep. if you don't, so basically if you fail three times or if you, the first time you fail, you will sit out that next interval. So you'll take an extra maybe 45 seconds, then you'll go the next one. And then if you fail three times, then you, you stop the set. So it's it's being really specific with what, what pace you're doing and uh, and making sure that you've got those times every every single time there and he's and he records all of these 25s all these 50s every session he's i think he's got that data from years back and so the the way that they well he and his coach his dad is his coach the way they kind of determine how he's going and if he's improving is by they can look back at this data from from many many years and they can see this improvement from when he was a 14 year old kid to now he's i think he's about 19 and yeah. the, the other way that they continue to improve is not just in slowly changing how hard these workouts are and how many of the intervals they're doing but the technique side of things they're constantly using the gopros and cameras to record make small adjustments to how he's working his underwaters and um and with those two things together and and knowing what numbers they're looking for and trying to achieve they've been very calculated with how he's been able to improve over the last sort of 10 years since he's been swimming and um yeah like that's that's an extreme end of things for the average person that's that's not going to happen but just kind of knowing roughly what what paces you know you, you should be doing at what heart rates and, and so on that's that's when you actually know whether you're getting better or not and that's not only good for how you're tra- knowing how you're training but I think from a motivation perspective when you see those little improvements come it drives you on to do the, the you know the next bit of training yeah absolutely I always look at a perspective data is there to help you and assist and if it's if it's not providing any anything more useful than what you're already doing, there's there's no point in using it, but if it is if it is there giving you, I say if it's something to motivate you to hit hit particular paces, um, but then also show that clear clear sign of progression, or if you're regressing and going the opposite direction, if you're plateauing a bit, you're going to know through through monitoring data over a period of time. If it's there and it's useful um, and it's implemented correctly, that's where it's super powerful, um, and that's where I think a lot of probably more of the old school old school coach or old school athlete sort of freak out a bit when they see all this technology and, and data and, and go, oh, there's just all these numbers and it's it's almost overwhelming. It's, uh, and even from our perspective, I mean, we use training peaks to to analyze and have a look at have a look at data and that. And to be completely honest, I don't look at half of the metrics on there because even then from a sports science perspective, there's just too many numbers sometimes that yeah. um, like, is, it, is it doing anything, is it doing anything useful uh, to assist me in helping an athlete, or is it useful for an athlete to know? Yes or no. If it ticks the yes box, then great. We'll um, we'll talk about. It, we'll implement it. If it's no, I, I'm not even concerned. Um, and, and that's where every, it's going to change as we as we go. We've got new technology coming out. I think um, 
a little, little while ago, I think you, you guys had uh, some like swim paddles that are going to be measuring like, power and things like that that you were getting guys to trial out. Um, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different technology and data that we can we can use, and that's that's just the reality of endurance sport is getting very tech focused and and trying to trying to nail down the one and two percent little differences, particularly elite level. But for for some people at, at the amateur or age group level, some of those one or two percent differences for a pro could mean ten fifteen percent. Um, it's just finding out which ones again are going to be useful. I mean. It, the easy one is uh, bike technology for triathletes. Like, talking to some of the guys who, who know a fair bit or two about about bike fitting and, and bike time trial position aerodynamics, the difference between frames and and what companies say is uh, the most aerodynamic frame really honestly isn't a lot for for the average person. It's not really going to gain too much, but being aware of your position on the bike and being able to sustain it and learn how to hold a quality position and then doing the training to to condition yourself to to power that bike. Is far more important. So, if the data can help you from that perspective and get you in a comfortable and, and powerful position, and um, looking at things like like you said with using GoPros in the pool and and that to assist the technique side of things or the technical side of things, and then and then from a conditioning point of view, yeah, making sure you're hitting hitting heart rates that or, or paces that are going to provide that positive adaptation. You're not just doing the same thing again and again and again. Um, that's where data is going to be or data is. It's most effective, and that's where it it has its place. Uh, being being a slave to it and just being stuck on it and going, I'm just looking. I have to look at my watch every five, ten seconds because I'm almost paranoid about I'm going to not hit my intensity or, or not be holding the right heart rate is is definitely not the right way to go about it at all. And one metric that I that that I just can't stand uh, looking at is on the on the swim watches with the the swell score. That it's really it's really inaccurate and it doesn't mean a thing so i just like i just i just whenever someone asks me about it they're like all right this is my 12 score um this is kind of how it's how it's been going don't worry about it it is super inaccurate so just ignore that one because there's a time and place for looking at uh, how many strokes you're taking and and the pace as well but it's just um yeah i don't know i've just sort of moved i've moved a, a long way away from that and um, and when the number is inaccurate, well, the data doesn't really mean anything anyway because the, one of the reasons it's inaccurate is because let's say you wear your watch on your right hand and you take yep. a uh, stroke with your left hand first. I don't think it registers that. And then like, mm. you know, same with um, what hand you finish on. So the numbers just don't don't mean anything. So just ignore that. And, um, and I, I find it's just a distraction. So, uh, yeah, this, the same thing with, with when we're running clinics and, and working with swimmers is look at it from the the macro perspective like uh people often ask questions that are too micro focused and they're not looking at the the bigger picture and, big picture yeah yeah and, and what's really going to contribute to them swing faster in the next six to 12 months so um yeah don't be too concerned with the minute details of your of your stroke where you know there's there's just so much more opportunity um available there so i think um yeah from from your perspective as well it sounds like that right you get your you do your tests, your VO2 max, you might do your lactate testing, do your tests, you get that data. And then once we've got that data, we just want to use that in our in our training and then just kind of you know, forget about that for now and just go about your training. You want to keep it really simple. It's so easy to get tied yep. up on, on things. Yeah, 100%. And it, like I said before, it's a case of, I mean, if you go out and do a run and I say it to guys all the time, it's, it's not the end of the world. If, if we're going out and trying to do a long, slow run and you're trying to hold a heart rate of, say 100, 140 to 150 beats per minute 
it's not the end of the world if your heart rate goes up to 155. Um, start to back off, and obviously, as best you can, we want to try and keep that heart rate within that zone. But it's not the end of the world if you if you happen to fit like running slow on a particular day, or, or like those days are going to happen. But at the same time, the difference between like, and it's the one, it's the athletes who get caught up on like, oh, I was I was one second per k slower. <laughs> the difference between the difference between that is so minute that it, it's not going to make it's not going to make or break your training. And if it's and if if there happens to be a session where all right, I'm ten or fifteen seconds per k slower, if it's one isolated session, what was the one? What was the reason for it? Was it fatigue induced? Was it um, you you had a stressful day at work and you you're just not motivated for the session, so you just couldn't push hard enough? We can pinpoint the reasoning and then we can try and eliminate that for the future and avoid it. But one session isn't going to make or break your four, five, six month prep for some of the guys doing Ironman are probably training for six to eight months prior. One session isn't going to make or break it, an accumulation of those will. So not being caught up in, yeah, like you said, minute details of the, the tiny little things in snapshots of time. It's how does this fit into the whole big picture? And I guess from our perspective, it's looking at your big picture training program or training plan for, for a key race, key event and going, well, I missed missed three sessions this week because because I got sick, but I just wouldn't have been able to get out and do it. It's like should I? I get the question all the time. Should I make up a session when I'm feeling good? Often, more often than not, I turn around to athletes and say, absolutely not, because all you're going to do is just put yourself back into that that cycle of either over fatigue yourself, and then mm. you'll get sick again, or or you just won't fully recover from your sickness because you'll try and go go back into it too soon. But yeah, if you miss if you miss a session or two, six months out. It's not going to have any impact on on your race result at all. If you're missing six weeks of training, different story. Um, and, and again, big big picture, it's like, well, what percentage is uh, one one hour swim? What percentage of that is out of a six month Ironman training program where potentially the athletes doing anywhere between sixteen and twenty hours a week? What percentage of that total training volume over that six months are you are you actually missing by missing that session or or not quite nailing that session? less than like you're talking less than one percent um when it accumulates again so big picture is is where you have the issues but yeah i couldn't agree with you completely on that one it's you got it you got to think what what's biggest bang for buck what's gonna and again coming back to the principle of like what we use with minimal effective dose what training sessions are going to mean that potentially some athletes for for 70.3 and like some of our guys looking at their big picture some of them are 50, 55 years of age, work, they still work reasonably full-time or close to it, just can't get out 15, 17 hours of training a week for a 70.3. What's going to give them the biggest return, big picture in terms of their overall health, their injury mm. um, risk, but then also what's going to give them best race result by only training sort of 10, 12 hours a week? How can we get the same, same big return, look at, all right, if I have to pick and choose the absolute critical parts, what are they? And it's the same with technique. What's what are the big critical parts to, to swim technique? And we saw our chat about this the other week. It's just like, well, there's a whole bunch of things that you could look at, but if your body's not sitting in the right position to start with or you're not aligned, that's a big issue that we need to fix. Tick the big ticket items off first. Once you've got through all that, sure, go for the the one percenters. And that's when we start talking about, I mean, from our end, it's you really at that point you want to be first or second in your category in your age group qualifying for world champs and it's the difference between you making a championships and you not 
or at the pro end of the spectrum where like prize money's on the line and it's if I'm not 1% better or half a percent better on race day, that's going to make or break whether I can continue racing um, that season as a pro and sustain it. So that's the, that's where it becomes important, those minute details, right at that pointy end. But for the vast majority of athletes, particularly athletes we see, it's such a – from our end, we look at it and go, there's such simple big-picture fixes that once you explain it and you can sort of, I guess, education from the big part is once you can educate the athlete on – how this does fit into the big picture and how we can we can change quite simple things to produce big results. Um, that's the powerful part of it. Mm. I was just talking to to Wayne Goldsmith and he's kind of a, almost a consultant to a lot of different sports on how to keep kids in sport. And we were just talking about uh, the, with younger kids, there, there's a big focus on just getting them to do the laps. And like, and he 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 reckons swimming is is the is the least can be the least fun sport for kids because if they yep. you know, can be two hours in the pool and uh, it might just be grinding it out day after day it's early mornings don't really get to chat with your friends when you're doing it so compare that to say soccer for example where even mm. if you are training three hours a day you still get to chat with your friends and and it's a team sport so what can you do what can coaches do to keep kids in sport and it doesn't matter if a kid's got this awesome aerobic base from 12 to 16 years of age and he's got this great vo2 max if he's sitting at home at 17 playing Fortnite, because the only kid you can't you know the, the only person you can't uh get to get to do anything is the person who's quit the sport so uh, mm. what can you do to to keep it fun and i think even from a you know, adult adults sort of they typically do the things they want to be doing so it's a bit of a different story but if you're not if you're not having fun and you're not enjoying yourself then you've you've lost already so yeah, yep. you know, do those things that that you enjoy, and um, and don't get too caught up in uh, in things if it gives you, if it makes you anxious, if it causes you to stress over over these little things. Just you know, you've you've only got the one life, so you want to live it, you want to enjoy it, and mm. I think um, you know that's that's why I think it's important not to get to to use the data, but don't get too caught up in it, and having someone like. Um, so yeah, you were Luke there to say, all right, this is this is what I want you to do. Now go out, go out and do it. Train at this heart rate. Yep. But um, yeah, leave leave the rest to to you. Leave the stress to um to you or yeah. looking deeply into it. Yeah, and like just to touch on your point about so the like youth in sport, and uh, I guess that's that people often go, oh yeah, so like there's there's these kids uh, elite pathway stuff and and specialization, and we see it, you see it in um see it in adults too. The, the number of guys I've got who've who've trained for trained for Ironman who go, nah, you know what? I don't want to swim and ride for the next three months. I'm going to go and just do a marathon and I'm just going to run for a bit because I need something different. Like mm. variety in what you do is, is so critical. And, and it seems sort of ironic that a sport where you've got a sport where you've got three sports within it, um, someone needs a bit of variety or a shakeup. It, it still can happen because going out and doing, I have to swim. Most of them are pretty routine. So I have to swim on a Monday. Then I have to ride Tuesday and I'm going to run Wednesday and, uh, breaking up that routine, doing something completely different, and, and just or just focusing on one uh, can be enough. But then, yeah, at a, at a youth level or a, a, at a kids level with sport, I, I did a paper on it for for my undergrad at uni in terms of earlier specialis- specialization in kids, and it's just even from the fact of yeah, staying in the sport is one thing, and trying to retain kids, and and you'd know through swimming as well. And we had this issue when I was at I was at Big Center is trying to retain good swimmers who just, yeah, their friends are doing other things. They want to go try other sports, but the commitment for swimming is too high. And if they're not swimming six times a week or seven times a week, 
the, the perception is they're not going to be any good and they're not going to make teams and things like that. So they go, they just quit, quit completely. But all the research from from everywhere around the world, and I did a lot of I did a lot of my looking into what makes the professional, what types of athletes or what kids end up becoming professional in the states, given that their population is so massive and they've got so many kids competing at such an elite level so early, what percentage of the kids who are gun in high school actually make it to NBA, NFL, professional leagues, Olympic games, etc.? And it was all the kids who specialized early and just did the one sport from a young age, played baseball, basketball, swimming all year round, that's all they did, blew up in college and really very rarely made it to the pros. Um, I think it was something like – 0.14% of all professional athletes in the States as of when the study was done um, hmm. were kids who'd specialized all the way through. Everyone else had come from a multi-sport background. So they'd done, they'd played, like if we're t- talking in terms of Australian, they've, they've swum, they go and play footy with their, their mates on the weekend, but then they also, they're involved in the school's basketball team. Like they do different sports. Um, and, and it was that variety that one, builds skills across, across each and, and it's the same transference between, like, if you look at triathletes, perfect example is the the requirements and, and core strength and ability to control your upper body through your core into your lower body and, and up and down the chain, that coordination aspect can't be an, underestimated from what you achieve in swimming, but then also the transfer of that coordination onto how you lock down your upper body to then drive off the lower body in, on the bike and then how you then not allow that upper body to, to rotate too much when you're running and allow the legs to do, do their thing as well. So it, it's that transference aspect that gets sort of lost in, Oh, if we need to be good at something, we need to practice that more and just focus on it. It's like, particularly at a young age, it just doesn't work. But even at, at the adult level, I see it, particularly some of my older guys um, who are sort of late coming either late into the sport or have been in the sport for a number of years and start to think about, well, they're, they're starting to wrap things up in their working lives and that with retirement and that. So they're trying to look at different things they can do. Um, like I've got, I've got guys who've never touched mountain bikes before now going and racing cross try because it's something different. They they would never have, never have ridden through a puddle of mud in their lives. And now they're, they're splashing around on a, on a mountain bike, uh, in an off-road triathlon race. I mean, something like that, it changes it completely. Yes, it's still cycling, but now you're having to, you're dodging through single track and, um, hitting some, hit some rocks and things like that. It just it just breaks open the sport a bit, gives you a new set of skills. And when they then come back and race one, they're mentally fresher, but also two, they've developed a whole bunch of different in that, in that exact example, bike control skills that they may, may not have had that are probably going to help them out when they're on the road anyway. So yeah, I've always been a big one for particularly youth athletes, but overall, if you've got, if you've got some sort of variety, you've got some sort of outlet other than the sport that you're competing, you're competing in. Great if you can't get that in during the season and you really want to focus on your sport off season, you have to be doing something different. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, so parents just, uh, keep being, keep the taxi service going and, uh, drive the kids around to multiple sports as they're, yeah. uh, as they're growing up. And you look at someone like Kyle Chalmers, the, you know, the hundred freestyler Olympic gold medalist. He, yeah, he could still play AFL footy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think not only obviously that, that experience as a as a footy player is uh, good for him in terms of his physical development but i think mm. mentally as well it's kind of to me it without knowing him to me it seems like because he could still play afl footy and you know, he, he might very well do it that when it comes to pressure in 
competing at a very high level, it just seems like it, it doesn't affect him nearly as much as it does yep. other swimmers. You know, look at Kay Campbell, for example, who, um, yeah, who's who's kind of buckled under under that pressure. Yeah, James whereas, Magnuson as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, whereas he's kind of got uh, almost an out. Whereas he know he knows he's got options there. So I just I don't think it affects him mentally as much. So it's it's good for that side of things too. Mm, yeah, ab- absolutely. It's just yeah, it takes the pressure off because you go well. If it doesn't turn out here, I've and it may not be you don't like you don't necessarily have to be a gun. Like he's probably an exceptional example where yeah he could be a professional athlete in a different sport. Um, and you, you still see it. I mean, you have a look at someone like Elise Perry and who's playing who was for a while playing cricket for Australia and then soccer for Australia and just about everything for Australia at one point in time. Um, but like though you have a look, absolutely. A absolute gun cricketer but also still a gun soccer player and maybe not the best at soccer and that's probably why she ended up transferring and spending 100 percent of her time in cricket now but and because of scheduling clashes etc but and it's not yeah we're not saying you have to go out and be a pro at all sports like you can still have one as your your main one um but it's handy to still have those backups uh to give you something else stay stay mentally ready to go but yeah it takes the pressure off because at the end of the day if you, if you don't perform well, it's like, well, if you decide later on, maybe this isn't for me, you've got something else sitting there ready to go. Um, whereas if, you, if you've only got one sport, and the perfect example is Lionel Sanders in triathlon. Just hmm, yeah. if, you, if anyone's watched any of his stuff on YouTube, he's like he's so intense about what he does. Um, and he sort of admits that as well. He gets right into it and, and just can't sort of deviate from it. And I reckon that's what hurts him in the end because he just – he just tries almost too hard to make it work going, well, if he wasn't racing Ironman triathlon, what would he be doing? And I know from the outside, it's, it's sort of easy to say, I don't really know what he'd be doing, but he, he potentially couldn't answer that question. And I think that's a big thing that if athletes can't answer that question of if you, if you tomorrow couldn't, uh, couldn't compete. And it actually just reminds me of a, of a quote where my, one of my junior footy coaches used to say it. He, and it's sort of a bit of a, Bit of an extreme example, but he I remember he used to say in in games that sort of meant a bit, um, he always used to say before the game, if you if you were the, by the end of this game, if you ended up like if you if you got a concussion or you broke your leg or something and you could never play footy again, would you one be happy with your performance throughout one the season, but two that game? But then two, what would you do? Because he always was a big advocate. He came from a PE teaching background of of go and try other things because it's going to help your performance on field and footy. Go and do if you want if you like cross country running, go and do that because your aerobic fitness is going to help you be a better midfielder. Or go and play soccer because um, or basketball because now your your hand eye coordination, your foot eye coordination is is a lot more a lot more in tune. Um, mm. That that was an interesting thing that sort of stuck with me in terms of you have a look at that, some of these pro athletes at the top level that potentially that sport is all they've got no wonder you see them sort of crumble once they leave that sport or something goes wrong because there isn't anything else to take up that attention. So you can almost sort of prevent that a bit. And I think from a coaching side of things, that's sort of our, our role as well to help drive that um, and prevent some of those, the, those downfall or potential downfalls later on. But the variety, the variety in what you do is going to help your performance in your sport at the time anyway, but also it's potentially going to give you something post post racing, post career, um, once you sort of decide that maybe you've you've had enough, um, it gives you something to go away, focus on, and, and maybe you do then reinvent yourself. Plenty mm-hmm. of examples of athletes who, I mean, Cam, Cam Worth in triathlon now, the gun, he's an absolute gun, he's killing races at the moment, but 
didn't quite make it as a pro cyclist, so he turned to triathlon and now he's the fastest bloke on the course. Mm. I mean, that that's a perfect example. Probably years ago, I didn't think he was probably going to enter triathlon at this at the level he's racing at now, but um, having a bit of that ability to transfer across to another sport quite easily and, and work on components, give him a new challenge, was is something that's, that's helping him be probably more successful than he potentially could have been uh, if he stayed in cycling. Mm. It's very easy to get caught just playing in the same playing in the same field or just kind yeah. of get caught caught doing uh, the, the same thing mm-hmm. because we, we think that we can't go out and do do different things or we feel like they'll be too far behind. But um, I've just, I've just taken up mountain biking and you know, not competing or anything, but just riding. Mm-hmm. I haven't been on my road bike for three years since doing Ironman, but uh, yeah. bought, a, bought a mountain bike and it is so much fun. And um, now I'm considering maybe getting back on the road bike, but we'll, yeah. we'll wait and see. But um, yeah, it's just like... It, doing those new things, there's so much opportunity available to get better at it that if you're at the top end of your your, your sport, those those little 1% improvements are harder to make. Whereas with a new, mm. something new, like it's okay to suck at something and you're always going to suck at something the first couple of times you do it, even the first couple of years you do yep. it, but there's so much yep. room for improving and that and that's what I, I'm getting a lot of enjoyment out, out of. And I can't, like going around berms, so kind of going around corners, like, I can't. Mm. I can hardly do that properly. Like I'm just starting yeah. to get the cornering right. It's like such yeah, a basic thing. Hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but but what I've actually taken from that, not just the uh, like the exercise side of it, but I'm thinking of uh, all right. I'm trying to teach myself how to go around these corners and you know make sure that my correct foot is down. I'm kind of leaning into the corner the right way and, and lowering that center of gravity. And I'm translating that into how I coach people and what people are probably going through in swimming when you know when they're they're trying to learn as well and it's like you know you, you think there's there's things to do in swimming and you think it's, it's just some basic movement like it can't be that confusing but trying to just go around a berm on my mountain bike i'm like all right it's pretty confusing and you've got to um mm. give people enough time to just repeat it and continually make these little improvements along the way so there's there's a lot you can learn from uh, from doing something new yeah absolutely and even like you so spot on with from a coach's perspective it's like I know I know training sessions and riding programs inside and out, but racing racing that program or or training off that program, um, I, I'm still I'm still learning. I mean, not being like I'm only 22 at the moment, so in terms of my race experience is pretty limited compared to a lot of guys, um, which is exactly why like I guess my my challenge if you like you're taking up mountain bike mountain bike my challenge at the moment is I've signed myself up for Busso 70.3 at the end of the year. Um, mostly from the fact of putting myself through it and going, all right, how are athletes potentially actually feeling through some of these sessions? I know that they're hard. I know that some of them are, are difficult. I know the science. I definitely know the science behind it. I know exactly why I'm giving it to them. But what is that person actually going through in that session? And more importantly, what is that person actually going through in that race? Um, what does it feel like when you get 18Ks into a 21K run of a half Ironman and you've got nothing left? Not that I hope I get to that point, and I hope I have a good race. But in terms of it, in terms of that, I mean, I think from a if we're now talking flipping it the other way and talking to coaches, I think it, I can't stress enough that sort of I guess practice what you preach, but then also yeah, look to look to other opportunities to take take out a, a way of teaching or a way of coaching um, a, a particular skill and un- understand how it's done somewhere else to then maybe apply it back. Um, and that's probably the I, I, 
probably really enjoy the most about working at Mets is we, we don't just see like we're not just triathlon and we're not just swimming we're not just cycling we're, we're endurance as a whole so looking at particularly for the try guys they're always wanting to know all right how can I get faster on the bike? So I instantly look at, well, what are the guys on the gun cyclists doing that I've seen come in? What are they doing? What are they doing in time trials? What are they doing position wise? Um, how are they best training to, to adapt their physiology? Cool. Start to apply those principles across. Um, what are some of our gun marathon runners doing that we could maybe apply to some of our Ironman athletes who are having to run a marathon on dead legs? Um, from a nutrition standpoint, how are some of the guys in triathlon dealing with nutrition over the course of a day, so someone who's riding their first 400, 500K ride um, or doing like a round-the-bay type event where they're going to be out there all day for the first time, how can they manage nutrition in a way that maybe we can learn from triathlon? So that, that transference of skills across to then see things in a, in a different way and then remembering that as a, as a coach or from our coach's side of things, remembering that it seems so easy to us because we're the expert on it. I think that's the big thing. seems so easy that, all right, I know how to change technique or I know how to change that training session, adjust it. Trying to explain that to someone else, and I've fallen in this trap with, like we've got a bunch of sports science interns working with at the moment who are second year of their degree. Every now and then I'll say something that they just look at me with a blank face and go, what the hell are you talking about? Hmm. And then I turn around and go, wait, I have to explain this in a way that they're going to understand on their level. Um, And I think that's probably that's probably just as important as a coach to understand because yeah, you might be then you might be saying it to an athlete and the athlete may just look at you on the day. If you're, if you're doing some swim technique with them or running, they might just turn around and look at you and go, Oh yeah, cool. Yep. 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 They walk away and 10 minutes later, they've got no idea what you've just said because they've just tried to take it all in. They've tried to be sort of polite and nice and go, wow, mm. you've got all this information. Clearly, you know what you're talking about. I just have to take it in and, and hope that something sticks from our end we go oh cool they just understood it great i'll just keep explaining it like that but eventually someone's going to come through and go i don't get it yeah they'll be and honest that's when I think <laughs> that that's that's when it's the hardest because then you turn around and go i've only ever explained it that way how else can i explain it um and, and so i guess luke put a big emphasis when i first started mets on let's use analogies all the time and i've already used a few today with like engine size bring it back to a v6 v8 i use my i use my office or our office here in mulgrave as as an analogy all the time i talk about um if we're trying to improve our ability to get oxygen in into the muscle it's like well the office inside where we're sitting is is the muscle outside of the bloodstream if you've only got one door into the office you've only got one pathway for oxygen to come in by doing long slow training or high intensity we can manipulate how many doors we have how many doors are open are those doors just a standard swivel or are they a revolving door do we just knock out the whole wall and get as much oxygen as we can Analogies like that and, and trying to find different ways of presenting the information is so critical because, yeah, eventually, mm. like I said, eventually you're going to get that one person who turns around and goes, I have no idea what you just said. And they, they, they shouldn't be expected to know what you said because yeah, unless, they're, unless they're a swim coach or they're a sports scientist or they've done a degree, et cetera, they're probably not going to have an idea. And even then, they may not be working, even if they are. Like we've had, I've had guys come in who've done sports science degrees. I've had guys do master's degrees in strength conditioning and things like that sit in front of me and still go i still don't get like i i I haven't heard any of this before and they've done probably more study than what i've done currently um and it's just a case of i just see this i see testing data and and training data day in day out day in day out so i know that really well Mm. 
but even someone who studied some of, some of the concepts before still can not quite put the pieces together. And so finding a way that you can pretty much guide them through. And if the first, first time you try and take them through, it doesn't work, have a second, have a third, have a fourth, have a fifth different way of explaining it because one of them eventually is going to stick. If you give them five different examples and they still can't get it, all right, maybe it's a maybe it's a communication thing on either end of the spectrum. But if if it doesn't, it's going to eventually work one way. And then once it does click for them, that one goes to the second on the list. And you go, all right, that's a really good analogy. And maybe that's a better analogy or a better way of explaining, coaching, describing something than what you originally were using. And I've done that. We talk about it all the time. I mean, there's, there's ways things that I, I explain um, like the office analogy I used before. I don't think Luke uses that one. He uses like um, turnstiles at the football. Like if you've got one turnstile and you've got 100,000 people trying to get into the MCG, it's not going to work. We need to build four, five, six. We need to build seven gates around the ground and put 10 turnstiles at each. How are we going to do that? Here's the type of training that's going to develop that adaptation. So it's it's a little bit what resonates with you, but then also what's actually what's going to capture the the athlete's imagination to understand what you're talking about and then implement it um it mm. is is the that's yeah underrated i reckon absolutely underrated yeah I, I, not oh, a couple of months ago i had someone comment on one of the videos we put up on youtube and i sh- i think he was a, i think it was a coach and he it was like this big paragraph probably four or five hundred <laughs> words I think he was talking about the catch, but I, I couldn't understand a word he was saying. It was just yep. like, I don't know if he was trying to sort of, um, you know, up himself and just kind of you know, talk talk up how much he knew, but it thinking, happens a lot. Yeah. Like how, yeah. how is, if, as a swim coach, who's done it for 12 years and I can't understand anything that you're saying there. How's a student going to understand that? It's someone who, who you're trying to teach. So, um, yeah, I think this, the, the simplest you can make something is, is the best version of it. And, um, we had a one of the things that we talk about is the rotation of your hips and your your upper body and basically getting the um, you to connect up the catch and your rotation and getting this extra power through the cross connection through your body and I explained this this was up in Noosa one of the swimmers who attended she kind of heard about how you want to drive from your hips and but never really understood it but the way that I like to describe it and I heard this years ago and I think it, it plays really well is if you are going to throw a ball and you're not allowed to rotate your upper body or your hips at all you might get it say 20 meters but as soon as yep. you can throw it like you would a baseball where you can open up through your hips you can open up through your upper body and almost use that upper upper body and hips as a as a sling to really uh, to throw it forwards, then you're just going to get at two, three times the distance. And it's similar in swimming and, and similar for overhead sports where when you do allow that rotation to come in, then you can just get so much more out of it. And then, so we normally explain that and then take them into some drills that involve that rotation and we get them to, to feel for the difference from not actually rotating forwards to then actually doing it and having having them almost do the the wrong thing and the right thing um, we do this with yep. kind of getting them to feel for how much drag is created if they put the brakes on when they their hand extends out in front then we get them to do it in the right position and just to teach them in i think experiential ways is is, is as good as you can do um, and then they can get a sense of when they are in the right position and when they're not and then they can make that adjustment and then using analogies because you know we all like to listen to, to stories and then our thinking brain just switches off and we just kind of we're in the moment we experience it uh, without judgment and that's why i think yeah stories and and analogies are the best way to really uh, describe things because no one's uh no one's kind of 
thinking in the back of their mind, you know, is, is this guy just, um, you know, is he full of it or what? But we just, we're just able to yep. take it in. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's really interesting. I don't know if you, you've had it where, where it's sort of been on shared some of those, those analogies, but every now and then just pops up on, on social media. We've seen athlete, we've seen previously, whether a coaching client or a, or they've come in just for testing and, Every now and then you see it pop up on, on their feed. They, they're talking about how, how much better their race result was or they're feeling better in terms of their training. And just in the in the caption un, uh, underneath, they, they sort of leave a few comments about, oh, yeah, because like now I've got this like bigger V8 engine. I can fit more cylinders in. And they're just like talking <laughs> the same language that you explained to it. I think that's probably the really cool thing is that that's the confirmation that they understand. Mm. Um, and if they can then pretty much – and they don't necessarily have to repeat it back to you in the same detail. But if they can get all the key points you were trying to get across and they understand it because of the way you presented it, um, that's what we're trying to do as a coach at the end of the day is trying to get someone to understand what, we, what we're trying to get them to do, really. Mm. Um, and, yeah, we get that sometimes where, where or occasionally we've seen um, and we know, we know people have obviously been listening to a podcast where we've used a very specific analogy and it's popped up somewhere else on social. <laughs> and we're like, or, or we've, I think there was, there was one time we were at a, I can't remember where we were looking or at a presentation somewhere and someone um, or a conference type setup and, and someone was someone, I don't even remember what they were talking about, but it came up, it came up in someone's presentation and we kind of just looked at each other and went, where have they pulled that one from? Knowing full well, pretty much where, like where it come from. Like it was a podcast episode or video we'd done ages ago. <laughs> and that was the kind of cool thing that like, and we, we've always been pretty, like pretty open book. Like we're not, like if you want to, if you want to take take our stuff and and repurpose it, reshare it, like and and if you if you so so inclined to try and brand as your own, go for it. But if you like, it's all going to come, it's all going to come back in the end. So like, we're happy to just throw stuff out and, and and put it out there and and just help educate as best we can and uh, to try and get some of these points across. But um, mm. yeah, it's it's sort of interesting how athletes resonate with. Like, it, it, don't worry about talking about that top end. Like, as a sports scientist, great. I, I can, if someone wants to come and have a conversation with me about um, about differences in power meters and the the plus minus percentage in well, left versus right, and what's go, cool, come and have a conversation with me about. It. But if I start talking about that to an athlete who's only just bought a tri bike and nothing else, um, it's just not going to like. There's a time and place, and you got to know who your audience is. Um, cause even then, I mean, some, some athletes are really good with it. We have, we have some guys who are full on, um, one of the guys I coach at the moment's got, he's, he's converted his bedroom into basically an altitude chamber. He's real right <laughs> into it. Um, but like has ticked every box and wants to tick every box and we can start to talk in a bit more of that, that complex language and, and cause he wants to know and he, and that's where the athletes going to tell you if they want to know more and they want to know why they're going to ask for it. Some athletes don't really care. They just want to know what they have to do. They don't really know. They don't really want want to know the why or need to know the why. So I think you probably you just have to pick your audience as well. And like analogies work. Analogies work for most people as a starting point. But then, based on who you're talking to, is going to guide where the next part of that conversation goes. And uh, I think if and if you only have to look as far as any physiology podcast. Um, if you look at Look at any of the ones that are that are up there. The sort of hour long, hour and a half episodes. We have to we have to listen to them for professional development and stuff like that. And and we just go, oh, just get to like get to the point. There's mm. so much so much complex science in there that we understand it, but it's just like anyone navigating it who is 
who's going that that one athlete who who turns and goes oh i want to know about the sports science but i don't have a background in it so i'm kind of starting from scratch so they're taking a really big jump to get up to that um that was the exact reason why our podcast that that we started and that you jumped on the other week was um is exactly how it's set up is let's just keep it to common language that we can talk about if regardless of who you are who's listening to it or, or who's on the podcast having a chat anyone's gonna be able to understand it because if if anyone can understand it then like we're, we're getting our point across and and it's going to be pretty clear in what we're trying to achieve if no one's understanding it then we're not communicating in the correct way um and if you refine that down to individual one-on-one work with an athlete if you can't communicate to your athlete what you need to need them to do or want them to do they're not going to be able to execute um, mm. on that, and they're not going. To, they're, they're probably not going to improve as a result because they're not going to be doing what is set out for them. Um, yeah, completely. Yeah. And uh, and for people who have um, who have listened to this in there, yeah, they might be based in Melbourne or somewhere in Australia. What's uh, what's the best place to get in touch with yourself and um, and the team? And uh, what are the, the websites and the socials? Yeah, so team first. So um, everything on social and uh, I guess if you like looking anything up on Google is just METS performance. So M-E-T-S, generally in capitals, um, performance is, is where you can find us. Occasionally, it'll come up as METS performance consulting. It's the same thing. If you're looking at the logo, it's a little running man with like a heart heartbeat symbol uh, in the background. Um, yeah, we're on Facebook, Instagram. We've got a YouTube page. Uh, we've also got, if you look up METS mastermind on Google, um, you'll be able to jump into our free content site, which is all the stuff that we, we've come up with over the last couple of years. And it's got our podcast and it's got a whole bunch of free endurance information, how to build training programs and navigate strength conditioning and a whole bunch of different things. Um, that also links to a, a free Facebook community we've got. There's a thousand, over a thousand endurance athletes from, from Melbourne, across Australia, and uh, a few international athletes as well, um, coaches, sports scientists, pretty much just a forum space where we can we can go into some of those more detailed conversations like I was sort of alluding to before, but also just sort of get to know what what the what is happening in the endurance community, what what we're doing here and um, and maybe pick up some tips. In terms of me personally, um, I'm mostly mostly on Instagram is where I spend most of my time. So you can find me at NJ underscore sports science. Um, or if you if you check my last name in the in the notes for the podcast, people are able to search it search it there. Pretty long one. Um, otherwise, on Facebook as well, it's Nick Jankowskis uh, dash Sports Scientist. Um, I think is what my Facebook page is called. I haven't really set that one up fully yet, but uh, they're the main two. Um, but mostly on Instagram. And then in terms of getting in contact with us, yeah, either via socials, so sending us a message on on Instagram, or Facebook, or if you want to get in touch with me directly uh, to set up a, a testing session, just chuck us an email at nick at metsperformance.com um, and we'll yeah we're, we're happy to set it up and happy to help out so thanks for listening to the effortless swimming podcast if you'd like us to help you become a faster more efficient swimmer go to www.effortlessswimming.com